Hey everyone, my name is Josh Proctor and this is the Life on Side B podcast. On this podcast, we are going to discuss, as the name pretty much clearly states, what life as Side B LGBT Christians is really like. For those of you who don't know, Side B is a term used to refer to Christians who are LGBT, attracted to the same sex, or have gender dysphoria, yet hold a traditional view of sexuality and marriage, and therefore live according to that view. Every episode, I will be talking with different Side B Christians about different aspects of their life, faith, and experiences. My goal with this podcast is to show that being Side B is not this depressing life of self-hatred and loneliness, but rather, it can be pretty dang beautiful and amazing. Now, every season, we will be focusing on a different theme of sexuality and faith issues related to the lives of Side B Christians. This season, though, I am really excited because we are going to be looking at different ways Side B Christians live out their sexuality and find intimacy and community. Each of these interviews has been a huge encouragement, even for me, as I navigate what community and belonging look like in my own life. You will be able to see that there are so many different ways that Side B Christians can live with joy within their faith. And in that way, I hope it can be an encouragement for you too. So with that, let's head into today's episode. Part of the reason why I started this podcast is because I wanted an excuse to interview people and ask them questions that I wanted to know. (laughs) People are like, oh, you're doing it because you're knowledgeable. I'm like, no, really, I'm doing it for the very opposite reason. I ever to start one. Yeah. I was just like, hey, this will give me an excuse to go to the people that I've wanted to talk to and be like, hey, can I talk to you? But rather than just saying I'm talking to you, I'm like, let's do an interview for a podcast. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Okay. All right. Well, you ready to start? We'll go ahead. So we are here again for another episode of Life on Side B. This time, though, we're doing a detour episode, though actually, as I've been thinking about it lately, I think this topic fits pretty well into the seasonal theme of community and belonging. Um, I am here with Luke Calvin, and we are going to be talking about church inclusion. Luke, thanks so much for joining. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, so to start, could you give a little bit of background about yourself for everyone listening? Sure. Um, My name is Luke. I um, live in St. Louis, Missouri. Been married to my wife, Jen, for 16 years now. Um, Just celebrated our 16th anniversary at the end of July. Um, I have two boys, Gray and Reese, 11 and 9. Um, I'm a licensed professional counselor in Missouri. That's my full-time job. And I also am the worship director at our church. Um, So I lead worship on a weekly basis. And in the last two or three years, I've become a ruling elder at our church as well. Um, And so I've gotten to to take part in sort of even more pastoral kind of responsibilities at our church. Great. And by the way, I want to put this out there to everyone listening. If you hear random things in the background, I'm in Columbia. Luke (laughs) is in the States. First of all, this is amazing that by technology that we can have conversations cross-country. Second of all, I am surrounded by noises. So if you hear random children screaming, if you hear random things, believe me, don't worry and do not call the cops. It's all fine. Um, <laughs> mine as well. Mine are downstairs. They've been threatened within an inch of their life to be quiet, but my sons don't listen so well. So it's all good. Be children, they could be Calvin children. They're, they're all fine. All right. Well, in this episode, I really wanted to bring up this topic of church inclusion, because obviously this has been a huge issue in churches as the, as the side B movement has become more prominent, has become, have gotten more of a voice since events like Revoice, since just different people being able to speak openly. And now churches lately have been trying to figure out what do we do with LGBT people who come out as gay and yet celibate? What place do they have in the church? And, And this has caused a lot of issues at the denominational level, any, but especially at the local level, things that we don't normally see. And so I thought this would be a good topic. Um, I guess to start, you know, as I said, 
one thing we've seen, you know, at, in the news from a denominational level and just from, I mean, even for me, from friends mm-hmm. in their local churches and even in my local churches that I know, churches re- have really had an attention of what do we do with the inclusion of openly side B LGBT Christians. And so, look, I'd first like to just get your thoughts. Why do you believe that there has been so much tension in churches on this issue? Well, I'll, I'll answer that in a second. I think the, to kind of put myself in the, the kind of story here, like I'm just trying to, to place it because as I, I'm, I'm fairly new to the side B community, the, the language, the kind of issues and stuff like that. Um, because the, the reality is like I, uh, when the first church that I worked for as a, a children's pastor or a children's minister or director, whatever you want to say, hired me, I let them know before they even hired me that I, in the language I used at the time was same sex attracted, mm-hmm. um, and had just gotten married, but they were, they were wanting me to, to work with their fourth and fifth graders. And I let them know kind of expecting that to be a deal breaker, but they really, they considered it. They knew who I was and went ahead and hired me. They didn't really, it wasn't a problem. And so my first experience with being sort of known as same sex attracted and kind of working in ministry was beautifully done. Um, And so I kind of just assumed that that's where we were as a church, as a denomination. It's just been within the last year, year and a half that I found out that is not how sort of denominationally we functioned. And so I've come into this last year hearing some of these stories. Now I'll actually be wanting to hear some of the stories from you too of, of folks of this actually being attention. Um, Mm. And so, so as I've tried to make sense of it over the last year and really trying to catch up to speed with the issues and how it's playing out in churches, a couple of things come to mind. So I've been, I've been a counselor for 12 years and I've been working with Christians who primarily have kind of, describe themselves as same-sex attracted. I haven't had many Christians who describe themselves as gay. And so um, describe themselves as same-sex attracted. And so I've worked with the community a great deal, but it's just been within the last year that I've started having clients that would um, describe themselves as gay and use that kind of nomenclature. And it really caught me off guard. And so it took me, um, especially over this last year since Revoice, I got invited to speak at Revoice um, in 2018. And I was thrown off by the language, honestly. I mean, this is an issue I deal with daily, but I think because the sort of ex-gay exodus orientation change has been the predominant kind of way that people have looked at it, when you have side B come along, it doesn't look like side X. And so people start getting nervous. They're like, oh, wait, 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 this isn't how we've done it. This isn't how we've thought of this. This doesn't match our framework for how we think sanctification happens. And so when we start hearing these words, they get afraid. And so, I mean, I can, I can kind of empathize with them because it caught me off guard as well. And I've been professionally caring for guys who are same-sex attracted and gay for, for 12 years. And so if I'm caught off guard, people who have been largely steeped in Cydex conversion therapy kind of models are for sure going to get caught out of left field. And what I found in working with folks is that when we're afraid, we're trying to make sense of things as quickly as possible to find out enemies and allies. If you're coming towards me, are you coming towards me with a knife or are you coming towards me to give me a hug? Um, mm. And I think the, the language and the fear kind of combined put a lot of people into a position where they're like, Oh man, uh, this just must be wrong. Um, this can't be right. And so they start taking a protective stance. Um, and so I think, I mean, and you could tell me this, Side B doesn't seem to have come to prominence except for in the last five, seven years, something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's, I think the church got used to looking at it and thinking about it in a certain way. And when that started to change, for them, it came out of left field. And so they, they got caught on their heels, didn't know what to do with it, and so went into a protective stance. Yeah. And so I, that's my first draft thought anyway. I mean, I'd be interested to hear what you think too. One thing I hear from a lot of side B people, and this is even in my own story, you know, I've been affirming, I've been in the ex-gay world. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that was because for a long time, I didn't even know side B existed. I knew that after I left like my relationship and decided to kind of leave affirming theology, I went to ex-gay really more because I didn't know where else to go. Right. There was just nothing else available but even there, I left that and I kind of went into this state of I'm not going to deal with the issue because I knew that neither were for me. I knew that that was not where I was supposed to be, but I didn't know what it was. 
right. where I was supposed to be in that. And obviously then learned the terminology of side B and was like, oh, this is what I've been kind of looking for. This is right. the whole thing. And so I get that. I, I do totally do understand that it is an adjustment when your mindset has been there's ex-gay and there's affirming. Those are the right. options. Yep. And everything about gay terminology is an affirming theology. Exactly. And and so then you do get this whole thing of, you know, I, I like what you said about we're all, we're all looking at who's my enemy and who's my friend. Like, are you coming at me with a knife? Or are you coming to give me a hug? And obviously exactly. we do recognize that the world is more complex than that. But in our brains, that's how we put together things. Well, no, that's exactly what happens when, we, when fear gets involved. The world goes mm-hmm. very black and white because what exactly. fear is telling us is we're in danger. Something bad could happen. Yes. So it yeah. puts us in a place where... I have to protect against the bad thing that could happen. And yeah. so one of the things that I'm hearing a lot, at least within the PCA about side B, is that it's essentially a slippery slope. Uh-huh. Okay, I can see the difference between side A affirming and orientation change. And side B wants to inhabit this middle ground, but really that's just a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. And so the fear kicks in that says this isn't its own thing. And so at, at least with the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, I think there's a little PTSD involved from a split with, within the PCA. I don't know how many years back between the PCUSA and PCA. Yeah. Essentially over issues like homosexuality, probably we, women leadership as well. Some of the folks that are still in the PCA now are like, look, maybe we even lived through this. We know of it. And this sounds just like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's entirely different. Mm-hmm. Um, side B is not affirming. It's mm-hmm. not asking to be able to be, it's not saying that, um, gay or same-sex attracted folks should be able to marry their own sex and, you know, um, and that God will bless same-sex relationships. No, 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 we're not saying anything anywhere close. Mm-hmm. But because it sounds affirming and because it doesn't look like, you know, orientation change, it must be just a, a, a passing through or a slippery slope to that side. I think there's just a lot of fear that gets wrapped up in that. And so we need to protect against that. We need to protect the church. We need to protect our people. Once fear gets involved, there's no nuance involved. There's no gray. It's just all black and white. And this must be bad because it's not side X orientation change. It's not what we've known. Yeah. You know, um, I love how Mark Yarhouse put it in his book, Costly Obedience, that he just came out with. Yes. Because he talks about how I'm going to, I'm totally going to butcher this whole entire thing that he said. (laughs) Um, But he kind of says, like, the understanding of the, terms of being part of the gay community Mm -hmm. there's like five or six things that you know you know like when we are part of a community there's there's unspoken things that we all agree on that make us part of that community and for he kind of listed like six things of what it means to be part of uh, part of the gay community okay and um i'm i'm not even going to try to remember what those six things are but they're pretty general things uh i don't have the book with me at the moment but I like how he said the whole difference between really conservative church leaders and side B people is church leaders come at that as all of that is one. You accept it all or none of it. Right. And side B people are coming in to say, no, we understand that there's much more nuances in there. There's parts of that, that, that that's real in our lives, that right. these attractions, they're not going away. They, they right. change the way that we look at the world differently right. than people who don't have same sex attractions. We, right. There's things that, connect us to other LGBT people and that's just a fact of life. Whereas the many church leaders can't see those nuances. They can't right. see that thing of how can you say that you're like with this, but then you're going to reject that. That doesn't make sense in their brains. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I think there's an experiential difference too. So, I mean, and just a little bit about language that I use as a counselor, my job is sort of to, to walk around inside the mind and heart of my clients. It's to kind of use the language that they use. And so I use gay, I use same-sex attracted. And quite honestly, I don't know if I'm using it for somebody else or if I'm using it for myself anytime I use it. Mm-hmm. So I kind of slide in and out of both, both sets of language. But experiencing same-sex attraction, being gay myself, it, there's a realization that we've been reckoning with this for decades a lot of times. You know, on a daily basis, we're trying to make sense of our experience and that requires a level of nuance. And so we've been doing that nuance work for decades. Somebody yeah. who hasn't experienced that, they don't, they don't have the same framework, they don't have the same experience. It does make it more difficult for them to see, well, how in the world could 
could these not be the same things? How in the world could there be difference between these two? Whereas mm -hmm. we've been discerning these for, for decades. And what I've realized is that um, when fear gets involved, we don't trust each other, we test each other. Mm -hmm. um, and so if we don't pass the test, if we don't use the right language, or if we don't explain it in a way that makes utter sense to them, it, it, it doesn't get trusted. So when we say, look, we've been thinking about this for years, you've got to trust me when I say this isn't lust, this is just attraction, or things like that, that's the hard part when fear gets involved. Trust gets really, really difficult. And in a lot of these things, we're asking our pastors, our elders to trust us when we're saying this is, it's not this, it's that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not the same as side A. It's very, very different, but it is very, very different from side X. We've been doing the nuance work for so long because it's our personal experience and trying to make that make sense to somebody who hasn't experienced it is just really, really hard. And yeah. it's even harder when there's no trust or lessened trust involved. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I agree with what you're saying about like why you use certain terms like gay and same sex trend and in different, in different scenarios. Cause even just with the guests that we've had on this, this show, it's interesting to hear how many people really say that like, well, I use different terms depending on right. who I'm talking to. And that's very true. A lot of times I feel really what side B Christians are saying about using the term gay is it's, it's not, what I mean is a lot of side B people even just say, I use whatever term depending on the context of where I'm at. Yep. yep. You know, because if I, for instance, I have a lot of affirming gay friends. And I have a lot of non-Christian gay friends. If I go up to them and say, hey, I'm same-sex attracted. Right. I'm going right. to be met with a lot of like, what, is, what even is that? You know? Right. If they um, even know the word. Exactly. Um, and I have friends who don't even know that. Side eye. You're going to get some serious side eye if you use that one. Exactly. And so it's just like, if I go into my relationships, that's never going to work. Right. But then also, you know, for instance, for me, being part of, you know, more conservative church circles... I have to be careful about what I language I use, especially when I'm in Latin America. as a family or as a body, this side of glory, it is not going to be easy. Yeah. Um, we do not, like, I, I love the picture of, like, the body of Christ. Some are hands, some are feet, some are ears, and the ears don't get to say to the feet that you don't belong, and the hands don't get to say that we don't belong, all those kind of things. Like, those parts of the bodies function very differently. They process very differently. They take in the world and interact with the world very differently. And so, mm -hmm. if we aren't able to accommodate for that and trust each other, that, look, as a hand of the body of Christ, you're going to deal with people and you're going to take in information and you're going to express thoughts very differently than I am as a foot. If there's no trust involved, man, the body just starts working against each other and it, it, it just doesn't function. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's been sort of the distressing thing to me with sort of just interdenominationally, just seeing the real lack of trust that's come from the, the fear that sort of invaded the church. Yes. The way I've started thinking about it is it's almost as if, and I'm just looking at the PCA specifically, my very small corner of, the, of Christ's church. The way I've started thinking about it is almost like the body of Christ has an autoimmune disease. Um, in an autoimmune disease, the body can't tell the difference between healthy tissue and foreign invader. And mm -hmm. so it starts attacking itself. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the discouraging things, you know, in the last year and looking how the PCA has dealt with this. There's not been a lot of trust offered um, there's been a lot of testing and a lot of mistrust or a lot of doubt placed on folks. And it's almost like the body's begun attacking itself. And quite honestly, the enemy doesn't have a whole lot of work to do once that's the case. Yeah. If the body's fighting itself, it can't be on mission. If the body's fighting itself, it can't be moving into the world, loving the least of these. Um, it's just kind of a wreck. Um, yeah. I, I totally agree. And I think the biggest thing that has happened with that, I love how you said it, it's the fear. It's the fear that we as the church face that causes us not to listen, causes us no longer to make it a conversation 
but to make it an argument. And I think then on the flip side of that, like one of the things that continually breaks my heart over the past few years is how many times I find my friends who are side B and they're in a leadership position or a staff position. And when they come out to their, their pastor or their church, they're taken out of that position. And this is not a one-time situation. This is a continual thing that has happened and it's heartbreaking. And a lot of that is from that fear of, because of that fear, we're not going to listen. This is the decision you're out of the position. But then the sad part of it is, is that with those continual times of being rejected or being taken out of positions, it causes a hurt on the side B people that also causes them to shut down and not listen either. And so then therefore you have fear on one side and you have hurt on another and it takes down this conversation where we're no longer having a conversation. Absolutely. Everybody's in a protective state. Mm-hmm. I'm either in um, the way that, so as far as counseling goes, I'm sort of in the attachment branch. I'm, I, I, I look at most difficulties that people face as a result of um, difficult attachments with primary figures, um, not feeling loved, not feeling connected to um, one another. And what you're talking about, this form of rejection, when fear gets involved that this family that I'm a part of or this person that's important to me, if that attachment or that connection is threatened, it sends me into this kind of anxiety or fear or panic mode. And in that, I'm either going to fight, flight, or freeze. And so when I'm afraid that if I come out, I'm going to be fired or I could lose my job, well, maybe I just don't say anything. Maybe it's better if I just kind of like say nothing. Or maybe I go the other way and I just come out guns blazing. You either accept me and all of it and it's not a conversation. This is, you just need to do this. Or I just leave, you know, mm-hmm. you know, this, maybe just this isn't the place for me. I'll, I'll just kind of go somewhere else. When yeah. fear gets involved, we don't get, it makes those attachments, makes those connections. It makes staying and staying engaged deeply really, really difficult. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I even... I can even attest that in my own life, you know, not from a leadership position, but I have been kicked out of churches and kind of what you were saying when I was a teenager, I went and tried a new church and I was so mad and I went up to the pastor after hearing the sermon and I kind of liked it. And so I went up to him and I was just like, listen, this is it. I'm gay. This is the whole thing. If you don't like it, I can leave or I can be here. What's your answer? Full on fight mode. Exactly. I'm going to take it to you. I'm not waiting around for us to find out that you don't want me here. I'm going to take it to you first. Yeah. And I love the the response of that pastor has always been one of the best responses Mm -hmm. I've ever received because he goes, well, (laughs) and he took a moment to pause (laughs) and he was like, I don't know a lot about this whole issue, but I'm yeah. willing to walk and learn. Oh, learn, willing to learn. Exactly. Huge. And, and honestly, we didn't always come on the same side of issues, but even yeah. when we didn't come in the same side of issues, the very fact that I knew that he was in a humble place of, yeah, I don't think that I, I, I don't pretend that I know everything about this, but I want to hear you. I want to talk with you. And that took down so many of my walls. Well, Right. I mean, that, that provides a level of safety that non-listening doesn't. If I trust that, okay, we may end up on, the, on different pages with this, but you respect me, you're going to listen from me, and you have the place of like, maybe you have something to learn from me, that's huge. Because if you take that stance, I can take that stance too. Because the reality is we need the church. We need it. We need our pastors to shepherd us. We need them to lead us through these things. It's not like it's a one-sided thing where they just need to learn from us. Like we need to be shepherded. And so if I hear that my pastor is willing to learn from me, man, that immediately takes down defenses. I don't have to protect against him. I can learn from him too. If he's willing to admit that he might be wrong about things, I can admit that I I can be wrong about things too. And that's not going to get me cast out. Yeah, sorry. I'm going to take a break a second because this guy in the background keeps using materials and I'm like, dear Lord, stop. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Oh, he's still going. He's using what? It's a saw. A little bit of a funny squeaky sound. Yeah, it's a saw. Okay. So in the floor below me is our construction building that we use to build stuff for our temp our sanctuary buildings uh-huh. uh, and then we send it all throughout the country gotcha I mean, he decided to use this moment to use his <laughs> so. anyway 
Yeah, I think that that's such a big thing. And I think the other side of it is, yeah, I just wish that pastors didn't feel like they need to pretend that they know everything on this issue. Right. Because I feel sometimes that as pastors, you know, we expect them to know everything. And so that in times they will go on the very little information that they've had before mm-hmm. and just be like, yes, this is, this is how it works rather than going, hmm, maybe I don't know everything about right. this. Maybe I need to learn more about it and go into a state of learning. Out of curiosity, like do pastors in the Colombian church respond the same way or is that sort of an Americanized version of pastors? Because I do think that the version of American Christianity we often get is almost like pastor as CEO yeah. um, or pastor as expert. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do think that they get caught in the trap of that's what their people expect and they're no longer allowed to be human and not know and be learners. And so I'm, I, I'm curious to know if that's like a sort of an American thing or if, if what you've experienced even in the Colombian church. Yeah. I mean, I would say in some ways they are more willing to listen Okay. Um, for instance, I had a pastor who just really hated gay people. Mm. He wouldn't say it, but I was like, I could see his heart. He just hated gay people. And the funny thing is, is even with him, him knowing me, him knowing about my sexuality, him knowing all of that, we would have conversations. And even him finally getting to the point of saying, you know what? I do hate gay people and mm. I need to work through this oh. was huge. Because yeah. I was like, yes, I've already known this. <laughs> I was like, this isn't a revelation for me. Finally got um, there. But I would say that there is more of a willing to talk, but con- pastors here are a lot more conservative. The questions okay. I get here are, are a lot more conservative. So the learning curve is still a lot farther away, but mm-hmm. pastors don't necessarily as often pretend that they try to think that they know everything about this issue. Okay. Um, so they normally do come with more questions. Tell me about your experience. Tell me about wow. this whole thing. So, yeah. Right. So I would say it is different, but in some ways, um, you know, I, I think in some ways there's, there's a little bit of that we as in general put on pastors, I mean, around the world, that they need to know everything. But yes, I do specifically agree that we do, especially, we do it more to an even extreme in the States right. than in other countries. Right. And so the, the pastor feeling compelled to know almost with a hundred percent certainty that this is how it goes. Yeah. And, and I'm, just, I'm, I'm lucky uh-huh. to work with 50% certainty on any given day. I'm oh, for me, like 20%. <laughs> yeah. 50% may be a little bit on the generous side for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you realize that I'm just making this all up as I go. <laughs> seriously. <laughs> I'm like, seriously, that's my life. Uh-huh. making decisions and pretending that I am a hundred percent sure this will work. Just make it look really confident. Oh, absolutely. I'm really good at that. But you know, and I think the other side of it is, and this is something I've dealt with has been kind of what we were talking about, that fear, that hurt that comes onto the side of LGBT people. Yeah. And you do get to a point of exhaustion, right? You get to a point. And honestly, sometimes it's not even that the church is being out front and mean, but uh-huh. feeling like, exhausted being in a place where you're not understood. Right. Um, one thing that I find very surprisingly a lot among side B people is how many people that are side B will end up going, if maybe not for their primary church, on top of going to their primary church, they'll also go to services at side A churches yeah. simply because they want to be in a place that they're understood. They may not agree with all of the theology, right. but they feel more understood in side A churches. And I'll admit, I've done that before. I've been like, I'm really exhausted. I'm yeah. going to go to this, this service at this church because I feel understood there. Right. Right. And so what would you say, what would be, especially from a counseling position, mm-hmm. what would be some of your recommendations on foresight people who are going through that exhaustion of how to deal with that? Man. What do you say? Sure. I mean, it's, I don't think we were designed to go through things like grief and hurt and loss alone. It, there's some interesting stuff that some of the new neuroscience stuff is talking about this idea of that our, our brains are made as co-regulating brains, meaning that for them to fully process information, for them to fully process emotion, we need another brain present. We need another person present if we're going to fully experience um, life. 
And so as these folks that are getting exhausted, what I often find is they end up feeling very, very alone. And they don't have a place or a person or a community with which to really fully process the sense of hurt or the fear that if I get found out, I'll be cast out or this sense of like, I just mm-hmm. don't know how I fit. I feel out of place everywhere I go. And I think that's honestly the experience of like, so if I were to use the term gay about myself, I'm primarily speaking to the experience of being other, not necessarily about the experience of, you know, um, even the attraction, but the sense of being other. Yeah. Um, when you're used to feeling other, you start feeling other everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I get the longing to just be a place. And, and that's the sad thing for me. Is, and so I'll, I'll sort of answer your question with a question you didn't ask. So there you go. I think the church was never intended to be something that's in dominant power. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was always supposed to be a church of others, such that the least of these, the littlest, the Samaritan, the leper, the widow, the orphan, all of them would feel at home there. But sadly, I think at least in the American church, when it came into power, it stopped thinking of itself as other. And so those of us who very much wake up every day with the experience of being other, we're not sure if we fit there or not. And so it's just, it's just painful. And like you said, exhausting. There's a, there's a tiredness that comes along with sort of constantly doing translation work, um, constantly sort of fitting in, constantly wondering how I'm seen, um, am I sticking out? And so finding those others, I think is super important. And I don't even know if it has to be necessarily other side B folks. Where are the people that experience themselves as others? And finding community there and saying, yeah, are you tired? Yeah, I'm tired too. Yeah. Um, And not even having to explain it. Because I think that's where some of the exhaustion comes in. For an other to tell somebody who doesn't experience life as an other that they're tired, they're then going to have to explain what they mean by that. Mm. That's tiring in and of itself. Yeah. Um, That was one of my, so probably Revoice 18 was my first experience of really side B community. And it wasn't until I experienced it that I realized how much I've needed it over the last 20 years. Oh, this is what it's like to not have to do translation work. This is what it's like to not have to explain myself. This is what it's like to be vulnerable and seen, but not in a scary way. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's one thing to be seen and enjoyed and know you're safe. It's another thing to be seen like a sore thumb. Um, It's another thing to be seen as one of these things is not like the other. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's largely how we experience life in most of these places is like one of these things is not like the other and to be in a place where we're all other, man, that's nice. Mm-hmm. And so whether that's community, that's community that's found online, whether that's just a community of others, I think that's vital because if we don't have a place to sort of grieve that loss, cause I think it is a genuine loss. It's going to harden. Um, and it's either going to turn into resignation or resentment. There's no way for it to turn into anything other than that. Yeah, absolutely. I love, I love what you said about it. You know, I don't have to translate anymore. It, yeah. it reminded me of my first time in Colombia, and as I was learning Spanish and you would get to these points where I mean, you're living by translating. I'm continually yeah. translating in my head and you get to these points where you, I would get so frustrated because I want to say something, yeah. but I don't have the capacity to say it. Right. where I don't have the capacity to say it in the way I want to. Mm-hmm. And so people would always be like, oh, you sound like a child. And I'm like, yep. yeah, but in my brain, no. Like this oh. actually sounds like a decent idea in my brain. <laughs> and when you finally, even just getting around other people that spoke English, it was just like, oh, thank God. Because yeah, right. you get in that otherness. And when you're the only other, right. it can get exhausting. You know, when I first became, when I, when I, one of my first Christian groups ever that I was a part of, you know, I mean, well, I grew up in the church, but really when I was a Christian, one of the first Christian groups I was ever part of was this Bible study. Mm-hmm. And I always tell people, it was the weirdest Bible study you will ever meet in your life. <laughs> I mean, like, really, it was weird because we had like, we had drug, we had like drug dealers who used to be there. We had just hippies. We had uh-huh. like some people who grew up in the church their whole life. We uh-huh. had like a woman who was just like that church woman that you just was just like that church woman filled with the spirit that you loved. And uh-huh. then like we had me as a gay person, all of these different people that you normally would just be like, well, what it was a bring- church of others. 
it was literally a group of others. And I, that's why I love what you said. When you get around others, for me, that was one of the best groups I've ever been a part of right. because none of us had a place in normal church. Mm. Now we didn't, there was not a single other gay person there. Yep. We were all, none of us really shared anything in common except for Jesus. That was right. about the only thing we shared in common. Right. And there were people there that I'm like, how are we friends? <laughs> I don't understand. But yeah, so it was that thing of being around others, being right. around people. And you don't necessarily have to share anything, but when you, when you share, I think that's even the LGBT community. A lot of times in the LGBT community, we don't really share a lot, but we share the understanding of rejection. Right. Perfect. Yes. And you can see it in their eyes. You can see it in each other's eyes. You don't have to explain. And you just yeah. know they get this. Absolutely. Damn it, this man behind me. He's still going on with his saw. He just keeps going. He just keeps sawing away. So, um... I guess then the next area I would love for us to talk about yeah. is, you know, when a lot of times side B people, they experience that rejection, they experience that feeling of being the only other, but right. then they go into a tension of, do I leave and find a more better supportive community or do I stay and try to make a difference mm. in this church? I know that that's been something that's even been in my life is like, well, is this the most supportive place for me? No. Yeah. But if I leave, what's going to happen for the next gay person? Right. What's going right. to happen for the next person there? And yeah. so I, I guess the other thing is then something that I process, and I think a lot of side people process, is when I'm in a church where it may not even necessarily be like a very closed-minded church, but just a church that needs progress, a church that needs yeah. to learn and grow more, yeah. trying to figure out how we can be good influences of change in those churches. This is just something I'm processing. So yes, please give your thoughts. Well, me me too. I mean, it's because again, in in trying to catch up to speed in the last year, I don't know that I'd ever thought of myself as even being a part of that change. And and something really beautiful happened post Revoice 18 for me is I came out of that and I came came back to my home church and pastor who I've been friends with for 15 years and elders there and said, I think I'm called to share my story publicly with my church that I'm gay, same-sex attracted, what have you. And we talked about it as a group of elders and agreed that that would, they, they would let me do that. And the first thing I said was, thank you for letting me do this. And Mm -hmm. one of the most important things that my friend and and pastor said is we're not letting you do this. We need you to do this. Mm. And something I've heard over the last couple of years, last year or so is I've, shared my story a little bit more. Um, and it's still hard for me to believe. It's hard for me to believe that they're not just pumping sunshine um, up my skirt, but that there genuinely is a, a need for the church to be led by others. And so to be led into areas of compassion and empathy and understanding. And so I do think that there is a, there's the, the church has a need to grow in that area. And I've had folks tell me that, the church even needs me and other people like me to do that leading. And quite honestly, that's terrifying to me because I think, and you can, you can tell me how your experience has been with it as an other. I don't know that I think that anybody needs me. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's the, the sort of shame kicks in that says it's just enough to be tolerated and welcomed here and kept here. I can't even get to the idea that somebody might need me um, Mm -hmm. or that my story or that the way God has wired me or the way that he's redeemed me in my life could be a needed thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, if we are going to be change, parts of change in the church, I think that's a truth we've got to hold on to. Because if we don't believe that, we're, we're going to be looking for the exits pretty quickly or we're just going to go silent and just be yeah. glad that we're not getting cast out. Mm-hmm. And so if we are going to be parts of change, I think we've got to hold on to that truth. And we've got to be able to find people that will speak that truth. And if the, the pastor of the church isn't able to do that, man, it's going to be a really tough place to be. And so I, I think my main thought here is 
I, I don't know that this side of this side of heaven, this side of glory, no church body is going to be utterly supportive, utterly good, mm-hmm. utterly welcoming. It's just we're way too broken as a humanity to get there. Mm-hmm. And so our, our, our litmus test can't be like, is it completely safe? So one of the discerning factors I think is going to be sort of like what you shared about the first pastor that talked to you is, is the pastor in the body a place that seems to be willing to learn or are they done learning? Mm. And if they're willing to learn and we feel called by God to stay there and be part of change, we're going to have to trust that the spirit's going to empower us, enable us to do it. Um, Because humanly speaking, I know what I want to do. And that is cut people off. That is run. That is find the perfect, even if it doesn't exist. Humanly speaking, I'm just not going to be able to do it on my own. And so if I feel called to this body and this family, and it seems as if this place is willing to learn, trusting the Holy Spirit to empower and encourage and strengthen is going to be vital, I think. I, I totally agree. I love what you said about that we need others to lead. Yeah. Because I've been a part of a lot of churches or, you know, been in a lot of churches or gone to a lot of churches that are like, everyone's welcome. Mm-hmm. You know, like we, this is a place of no judgment and all that stuff. And right. it's interesting Yes, we as churches many times, I don't know of very many churches that don't want everyone to be part of their church. They want their church to be a place where others can feel like they belong. The issue is then when you look at the leadership of the church and they all look the same and they don't look like others. And it's kind of like if you are a church that wants your church to be multicultural and yet all of your leadership is white, it's not going to happen. (laughs) It's not going to happen because you have to have people in leadership of the kind of people that you're wanting to reach. And if the only people that you're having in your church are white, straight, married people, right. Then that's all you're going to reach. You're going ultimately. to attract straight, white, married people. Yeah. And, and those who are not that are going to feel on the outside. Exactly. Like they might be willing to go, but they're never going to truly feel like they belong. Right. Right. And I think that, it's true. We need to recognize as side B people that our voice is important. Right. We as LGBT people are many times told to sit on the sidelines, yeah. you know, or, or. Well, to, I think some of that's probably remnant of sort of the orientation change model of sanctification mm-hmm. of if you still experience same sex attraction, that's been a deficit or deficiency in your um, discipleship. And yeah. so when that, if that changes, we would welcome you to lead. But until then, essentially, you need our care, you need our help, and we're glad to have you here and help you in that way. Mm -hmm. But we aren't ready to trust you to lead. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, there's a huge discrepancy. A lot of guys would say, no, 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 we we welcome all folks. We want Mm -hmm. um, same-sex attracted believers in our church. And they do. And that's genuine. The difficulty is trusting that the Lord is still leading and redeeming and gifting these same people, even if they're still same-sex attracted or gay in the next 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's where the, I think the next phase of this may be going, quite honestly, is I think churches will begin moving one of two directions, either towards sort of like, no, no, if you are still gay or same-sex attracted, you cannot be in leadership. And those mm-hmm. churches are saying, no, I think actually redemption is still at work in this side of the fall. Some things are just not going to change. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think it's important, as you said, that we as LGBT people also remember that you're never going to find the perfect church. You're never going to find the perfect community. We are humans. And, you know, I think we don't read the New Testament enough to see how screwed up their churches were. (laughs) The first century church was screwed up and messed up in multiple ways. Yes. I I really think, I had a friend who did a study on like he said, like 50% of Paul's writings were just about getting people to get along. <laughs> like literally, if you put it, break it down, 50% of what he was talking about is like, just get along because you all belong to Jesus. And because so we- Broken relationships are broken. In this exactly. side of the fall, we are all selfish mm-hmm. sinners. Yes. Um, and, but yeah. I, I also love what you said that our, 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 our thermometer when we're in churches of whether or not this is a good place for me is- whether or not the leadership is at least willing to listen right. or learn 
if they have if they're done learning then that might be an issue but even right. if they're just willing to learn they may not they may have a long way to go they may just be on the beginning part of their learning right. stage of this but even a church that's willing to learn can be an amazing place for an lgbt person right the thought that's continued to come to mind in what kind of shepherd are we looking for is when when jesus talks about look the good shepherd knows his sheep he knows their name and they know his voice mm. If our pastors are willing to know our names, know our stories, know our brokenness, know our strength, know our glory and shame, that makes a safer place. And if we know their story and we know their name and we can trust their voice and follow them, even if we end up on different pages, that's a shepherd I can follow. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I, I think what, what I've noticed is especially with this issue, but I think with a lot, even in the PCA, we're a, we're a very brainy church rather than a very heart church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we tend to talk about issues just based on principle and we tend to avoid the personal. Um, mm-hmm. And that gets risky. Um, if, a, if a shepherd's willing to talk about it both principally and personally, wonderful. Mm-hmm. If they're just willing to talk about it based on principle, that's going to be a lot harder. Yeah. I think that's the biggest thing to ask of pastors Yeah, is just if pastors can be willing to learn and listen, mm-hmm. to be able to learn and listen and to know the people in your church that are LGBT. And also to put this out there, because I run into this a lot with some pastors who are like, well, I don't have LGBT people in my church. Ah, you do. <laughs> you do. They just haven't told you yet. Exactly. I'm like, actually, I, I one time told a pastor that I said, the biggest one of the biggest thermometers to know whether or not your church is a safe place for LGBT people is whether or not, you know, people have come up because if you don't, if no one has even come forward to you that they're, that they are same sex attracted or LGBT, then they're still there. Right. They just don't even feel safe enough to talk about it. Right. And a lot of that just starts with showing yourself as a safe person. Right. Showing yourself as a safe person that people can talk talk to. Right. Well, and I think that it gets back to, again, pastors don't tend to talk about their own brokenness, their own sin in real terms. Um, because again, I think they're demanded to be experts um, and better than us. We, I think we tend to want to think that at some point in time in our discipleship, we will be without sin and we'll kind of have our stuff together. And so I think we put that demand on pastors and they then have to reciprocate. But I think one of the things that can make it a safe place for any kind of other to be, but especially Mm -hmm. LGBT other, if the pastor is leading from a place of weakness, if they're leading with vulnerability and saying how they are broken within Mm -hmm. reason, Mm -hmm. um, but how they are broken, how they have seen the Lord redeem their lives, how um, they do not have it all together, that begins to create a safe enough place for folks to begin sharing across the board, not just LGBT, but heterosexual, this is how I'm broken too. Because the expectation is not that we have it together. The expectation is that we're desperately needy of a savior mm-hmm. at all points in our lives, not just at the beginning points of salvation. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I tell people as I plant, uh, I work to plant a church that the one thing I haven't mastered of being a, a pastor is, is acting perfect because I am, oh, I am skill. May you never get good at that. Oh God, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I am way too honest. Uh-huh. I am way too honest with my stuff. Um, I've got no filter. Um, and there are places where that works really well and places where it gets me in trouble, but yes. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I'm really glad that we have talked about this because I think that this is important, even as we've been talking this season about community and belonging, because really where we all should be finding community and belonging is in our churches. Yeah. It should be um, in our community of believers. Right. That is why it's so important that as, as we, I mean, whoever we are, this isn't even an LGBT issue. Right. As you said, for everyone to, everyone is called to feel that they belong in their family of faith because right. we are all part of the family of God. Right. And so I think this is an important thing that, that all LGBT people are going through. Right. Especially. I'm glad that we've gotten to talk about this. Yeah, Before we can. go, uh-huh. I want to try out something new. So we're going to try oh. this out. All right. Yeah. Okay. I want to try a fire round with you where I'm going to ask you very random 
questions. Oh, yikes. I've already and, told you I don't have a filter, so this could go really poorly. It's okay. Don't worry. <laughs> don't worry. They're not crazy questions. Okay. Okay. But this is so people can get to know you a little bit more also. Okay. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yes. Okay. All right. Fire um, away. iPhone or Android? Android. Ha, huh, thank God. <laughs> but okay. I'm doing this on a Mac computer, so what does that mean? Uh, <laughs> you're partially centered, but it's fine. <laughs> Most influential book in your life related to sexuality and faith issues? Yeah. Um, okay, or so one of them. So interestingly, The Mystery of Marriage. Oh, um, who's that by? Right. Uh, oh, you don't, if you don't know, it's fine. I'll I look can't. it up and I'll put it in the episode notes. Puts, because it puts, it's a marriage book, so it's not a sex book, but it puts it in the context of relationship and emotion rather than just sex. Okay. And the difficulty like is when we talk about sex just as a mechanical act rather than as something that is to unite um, and be a form of communion. Okay. Mystery involved. But yeah, I, I, I like that. Okay. I'm not even married and I'm considering <laughs> like reading this book now. Most recent movie you've watched? In a theater or on TV? Whichever. Uh, Endgame. Ooh. Ooh, that was a good one. That yeah. was a good one. You know, I went to that movie with some of my friends who uh-huh. are like avid Marvel fans. Uh-huh. Or was it that one or was it the first one? I don't know. But it was one of the, it was that one or it was the F- Infinity War. No, it was Infinity War because then everyone died. And yes. I, they were bawling out crying and I was laughing. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can tell him. Oh, heartless. I don't know why. I, 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 yeah, I am probably heartless. Sometimes what? we don't explain our emotional responses. Yeah. Final question, or two, oh. two more questions. What, oh. char- what character of the Bible would you say you most connect with? Mm. So I was unable to get out of the upper room for two years because of the interaction with Jesus. Um, and I think that John, maybe, maybe I'll go with John. Mm. I love his heart. I love the way that he writes. I love his um, physicality, viscerality, um, emotional stuff. I, I'd say John. Mm, that's a good one. I love it. Last question. What is your guilty pleasure with food? Guilty pleasure with food. Like your food, like food wise. What do you uh, go to when you're like, I don't care about health. Let me uh, Mashed that. potatoes and gravy. Mashed potatoes and gravy? Yep, it I love it. Potatoes. Very Southern. It's comfort, white cream gravy. I could probably eat that by the bucketful. Ooh, I like it. Now I'm craving mashed potatoes. <laughs> I, I like, like it. it. That was fun. Right? See, that was just fun. Good to know you a little bit more. Excellent. Thanks again for doing this. Dude, thanks for having me. This was fun. Yeah, absolutely. For everyone listening, as you've listened to this and listened to the past episodes and the ones coming up, if you have any more questions that on these topics that uh, you feel weren't covered that you would love to ask to the guests, uh, write in to me at the uh, email, which is lifeonsidebpodcast at gmail.com or message me on social media through the podcast. And then during at the end of this season, we're going to have a Q&A episode where I'm going to ask a few more of the questions that you guys have that hadn't been asked so far. So send those in and as, as you think of them. And everyone just continue to listen. We'll have another episode up next week and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. <laughs>